Our scripture lesson this morning comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in it is fruit and shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It is, uh, uh, as, as much as there is uh, wrong or remembering wrong in the world, especially my neighbors back in New York will be remembering today, uh, there is at, at least one front where everything is once again right in the world. And that is that Alabama almost, well, it was only a missed tackle from losing to an unranked team yesterday. And the Tennessee Vols beat a ranked opponent and are now 2-0. and oh. <laughs> Big Orange Country. So um, in that respect, um, things are getting back to normal. So that's good to know, to be reminded of this morning. Um, but here we are, third week uh, in this uh, series looking at the book of Genesis. And uh, we have said by way of introduction uh, that uh, the book here of Genesis is really the first installment of a five-volume five work, a constitution that God was giving to his people as they were on the verge of entering the land that he had promised to their great, great, great forefather, Abraham. And we, we have pointed out there are similarities between these who are your spiritual ancestors and Rez Prez. Uh, they're in a great time of transition. The Israelites have just said goodbye to the only leader they have known as they're about to start this new phase in their life as a community. And they have questions. And, but at the end of the day, uh, uh, Israel's call remains the same. And that is to be a people who lived in such a way that mediated and communicated the good news, excuse me, the good news of the knowledge of their God, Yahweh, to the rest of the world. We've also said that as we come to Genesis, we must be cautious in demanding the text in front of us to answer questions that we might have or we might want it to answer, especially our more scientific questions. Um, And because, and the reason we say this is because although Genesis was written certainly because it's God's word and we are his covenant people, it was certainly written for us. It wasn't written directly to us. And so we must keep that in mind as we continue to go into this sermon series. And last week, we made some progress in chapter one. We will finally finish chapter one after three weeks this morning and, make, and move ahead. 
But last week we saw that when God made all things, he made it good. He liked what he made. It was good. His posture towards this physical world is positive. He is excited. He's proud of his work. And this morning we'll continue to move forward God's work in creation and see his final act of creation. And as we do that, would you pray with me just one more time quickly to ask God's presence with us here now. Heavenly Father, we do ask that as we come to this, your word, you would remind us that no matter how we find ourselves here this morning, whether we come in enthusiastic, excited, whether we come in and our demeanor in, internally is much more reflective of the, uh, the weather outside, we're, we're either down or sad or dealing with a trauma of, of some sort, big or small in our life, whether we're confused, whether we have great faith right this moment, whether we have doubts, however we find ourselves this morning, would you remind us and convince us that no matter how we have come into here, you intend to meet us exactly where we are, that you love us enough to give us your son, and you love us even now by giving us this word. And so we ask that you would send your spirit to speak through this word, speak through me, the speaker, around me, in spite of me, however is necessary, that we might leave this place knowing we have met with the living God as we engage his word. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Many years ago, there was a newspaper article written entitled, The Irony of Being Human. And the author of the article recounted two stories that actually happened simultaneously in the exact same location in a hotel. The first story he recounted was of a young woman who was in her late 20s. She had just left her husband, her children, to run off with her lover to meet here at this hotel, and her lover at the last minute decided to not show up but to stay with his family and left her all alone in the hotel room. And here she is, completely lost. She's lost her lover. She's now lost her family. She's lost her husband. She's lost her children. She's lost her reputation. So she wrote a note, simple note, pulled out a gun, and shot herself. The note on the nightstand simply read, Don't cry for me. I'm not even human anymore. Simultaneously, in the same hotel, there was a New Age convention that was being led by a very famous celebrity, and I won't name the name, but roused the entire group so that at the very end of the convention, at the end of this celebrity's talk, had the entire group of people standing, waving their arms, and chanting, I am God. I am God. I am God. The author, the writer of the article, concluded that that's the irony of being human today. That people in the exact same place at the very same time can have such an opposite and diametrically opposed view of themselves. On the one hand, I am nothing. On the other hand, I am God. 
Wow, John, what a downer opening illustration. Thanks for that. <laughs> but it really, I think, gets to the brokenness in our humanity that I believe the author of Genesis 1 is actually longing and desiring to address. You see, I think we all, at one time or another in our lives, and some perhaps to greater degrees than others, have known what it is to, it, to actually feel really, really high on life. I don't mean high. High on life. Almost invincible. We have known moments like that. At, at, at least moments where everybody else thought we were wrong, but we were convinced we were absolutely right. Other points in our lives, we have all at some point actually felt less than human. And certainly the Israelites would have at this time in their journey most likely have felt on the lower end of things in society. The reality of enslavement and the constant reminder that they were nothing but simply cogs in the wheel had been beaten into their heads, sometimes literally, for 400 years. They had been born a slave. They had lived and labored as a slave. They had died a slave and died a slave knowing that the same future was all that awaited any children that they had. And Moses introduces into the narrative here, however, that a claim that Israel's roots were not in slavery, but actually, in some respect at least, in deity. Prior to this point in chapter 1, the pace has been pretty quick, even though it was 25 long verses we read last week. Here, everything slows down. Before, we saw the heavens and the earth being separated, the waters up top and below being separated, planets and the billions of stars being hung in the sky, animals coming forth, fish, trees, plants. And now, creation of humanity, and now everything starts to pause. First of all, it's, it's the most extensive account we have seen thus far given to describe any aspect of God's creative work. Secondly, for the first time, instead of it, the text simply saying, and God said, we see some kind of what looks like to be deliberation happening in the Godhead. Let us make. After our likeness. Now, it's too early in redemptive his history to think that the Israelite would hear Trinity there. <laughs> but there's certainly something happening uniquely in the heavenly realm for the first person plural to be used. Perhaps it was a kind of what is called, and I had to search for this word, I knew it existed, I didn't know the word. The pluralis majestatus. Yes, that's a real Latin word. It's when a monarch uses the plural form of the first person when addressing themselves in their correspondence. It was actually used by the late Queen Elizabeth, who we just lost this last week. 
And so here the intention and the purposefulness of the creation act that we have seen before is actually intensified. Verse 26, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then in verse 27, the flow absolutely comes to a screeching halt. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then furthermore, God even repeats in instructive form directly to humanity what he had deliberated and collaborated about within the Godhead in verse 26. Verse 28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And when he is done, the chorus and the rhythm that he had already employed in the first 25 verses continues. At the end of verse 30, we hear again, and it was so. We are back into the chorus of the main song after an extended bridge <laughs> about humanity, so to speak. And we would expect for God then to next comment on what he had just made as he had already done again and again. It is good. It is good. It is good. But this time, it's not simply good. In fact, Moses adds an exclamation in verse 31. And behold. <laughs> in other words, look here. If your mind has wandered somewhere else, come back. Notice. God saw everything that he had made, and it was very good. Therefore, my friends, this, the creation of humanity in God's image, this is the pinnacle of creation. The creation of humanity is the apex of the story arc. Yes, it is literally astronomical what has transpired in the first 25 verses. Literally astronomical. But the writer intends for us to pause here and consider what it means to be created in the image of God. You see, for the ancient Near Eastern resident, for the Israelite, they would be very familiar with this language of image of God. You see, they had heard other humans referred to as the image of God. but not all humans. In Israel's day, it was the kings who were said to be created in the image of God. It was the Pharaoh who pronounced again and again, reminding those under his rule, I am created in the image of God. But Moses, pastorally writing to his people who had just left the slavery in Egypt, Claims, no, no, <laughs> actually all human beings, not just kings, not just the powerful, not just the wealthy, not just the well-adjusted and people that seem to have it all together, not just those who make great contributions to society, all, even you Israelites, you 
who have the idea and reality of being nothing more than oppressed slaves embedded deep down into your psychological constitution, you <laughs> are actually made in the image of God. That had to be absolutely earth-shattering for an Israelite to hear. And I make the case when we come to fully understand what that means, it should be earth-shattering for us as well. Not only how we think about ourselves, but how we treat one another. Let me pause just for one few couple moments <laughs> and ask, what exactly does it mean to be creating God's image or after his likeness? Because there have been, there have been, there's been a ton of ink spilled by theologians over the years on what this means. And, and frankly, honestly, at the end of the day, I think a lot of them, a lot of the theology just makes things too confusing. I think there's plenty of clues right here by Moses that points to what he's getting at when he says, no, you're all created in the image of God. And at the end of the day, I, sim I think it simply comes down to, please forgive the alliteration. I think it comes down to simply three R's. <laughs> Sorry. Normally, when I hear alliteration in a sermon, I'm thinking, you were really forcing something there <laughs> into those three, those categories. But I actually think it fits pretty well here. First of all, it means something relationally with God. To be creating God's image means we can relate to him <laughs> in a way that is unique to any other creature. Only humanity was given the invitation to be in genuine, interactive, intimate relationship with our creator a relationship that's dynamic and even enables the two parties to actually enter covenants with each other. This is why this will be important later. Secondly, reflection. To be the image of God is to reflect like a mirror the beauty and the glory of God to and throughout the entire earth, starting with our closest relationships. To reflect God's good character everywhere humanity goes and then finally representation humanity is given the command to take dominion to rule to subdue all the rest of the created order as God's representative on earth and that's not a license to take dominion in a hostile way towards creation far from it rather as the steward and caretaker of God's good creation we represent his rule to the rest of creation as his vice regents. Oh, there's a right way and a wrong way to rule and to take dominion and subdue. <laughs> but the type of ruling that the Bible has in mind and is promoting here is one of a servant king. It's a type of ruling that promotes and champions, not thwarts, the creation's mandate to multiply and fill the earth. So all of this is why uniquely the biblical doctrine of the image of God matters greatly, not just to the original Israelites, but even to us here today. You see, I would make the case that sitting here today in our, in our world, in this time that we live in, you will be very, very hard-pressed to find any philosophical basis for any human rights of any kind. You'll see a lot, we will see and experience a lot of promotion of human rights, rightfully so. <laughs> but as for the philosophical basis, 
you will be hard-pressed to find it in any other philosophy, theology, aside from <laughs> the doctrine of the image of God. You see, we live in a time, in a cultural moment, perhaps as intense as ever, where, where you are what you contribute to society. Your value as a human being is based on what you produce. There's no basis philosophically for intrinsic worth in your simply being a human being. And as the Australian-born, honest, atheist, bioethicist, ethicist, and philosopher at Princeton, Peter Singer says, our value, our human rights, are all grounded in what he termed our capacities. What we produce, what we contribute, what we can do on our own, what we can choose. And so that is why I believe that the temptation to work just an extra hour at the office, just an extra hour on Zoom, if that's where your office still is, <laughs> as opposed to using that hour in a meaningful, engaging relationship with another human being, the reason that temptation is so difficult to resist and to silence is because we're not taught to believe that our image of God, our, our, our value, our, int our intrinsic value is because we're in the image of God. That's it, period. And so it's often what compels us to do more of anything that we believe gives our life meaning and value. And things that are actually often can be very good things in and of themselves. But we use them to try to convince ourselves that we are worthy. We are needed. We are valuable. Because I have done this. And so for Singer, and for the secular natural mind that dominates academia, and, and for that matter, a lot of society, when God is no longer part of the equation, there no, is no longer an image of God. <laughs> There's no one to image. There can't be. But it was the doctrine of the image of God that has been the undercurrent of many, if not most, great historical human rights reformations and revolutions. It's the doctrine of the image of God that was the undercurrent that led to the end of the transatlantic slave trade. It's what led to the Geneva Convention and its provisos. It's the doctrine that Martin Luther King used as his basis and quest for civil rights for all human beings, regardless of their skin color. And what Genesis tells us right here at the very beginning is that we derive our tremendous worth not because of what we have done <laughs> or can do or have the capacity to produce, <laughs> but simply because he has stamped his fingerprint on us as human beings. That's the source of our true identity. And there is therefore not a single human being who does not have that same intrinsic worth because of this. It's why C.S. Lewis engages it this way in his work, The Weight of Glory. There he says, there are no ordinary people. 
You have never talked to a mere mortal. <laughs> Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals. And I would just add in there, those created in God's image is what he's getting at. Whom we joke with, who we work with, who we marry, who we snub, who we exploit. And then Lewis finishes with some strong words. Next to the blessed sacrament itself. Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Now, if I was weird and wanted you to feel very uncomfortable and awkward, I would write, and I'm sure there are people who have done this, I would have you right now turn to your left and your right and tell that individual, you are creating God's image and I'm affirming that right now. I'm not going to ask you to do that. But Brendan bears God's image. My son, even my son Walt, bears God's image. Alice fully is imprinted with the very DNA of the God after whose image she was created. We will see this image of God doctrine show up again and again throughout the Bible. We'll actually see it come back in Genesis 9. And we'll see it in the New Testament. When James, the apostle, uses it as the basis for addressing certain things that he was seeing happening in the church. In Genesis, uh, Genesis in James 3, he had Genesis in mind, he says this, No human being can tame the tongue. It's a ruthless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we both bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. <laughs> what is he saying? He's saying because every one of us is created in the image of God. Every one of our brothers and sisters in the faith, every one of our neighbors are created in the image of God. When we slander, when we gossip, when we lie to, when we ignore another image of God, we are doing it to God himself. And James exhorts us to, instead of being mouthpieces of condemnation to one another, to be vessels of God's blessing and benediction to one another as those truly reflecting the beauty of being in God's image. It's, 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 it's not a small part of why we pass the peace every week. And just as a side note, I, I'm an introvert, and, and I will be honest, I've always despised the passing of the peace part of the service. <laughs> that may be your case here this morning. If it is, this is, by the way, so if you're an expert here and you love that time, this, this part's not for you. If you're an introvert this morning and you do not look forward to that, that time, let me just tell you that simply going to your neighbor and saying, I wish you the peace of Christ, you're done, and you've esteemed and affirmed the dignity and image in that individual. You're done. You don't have to have a conversation. <laughs> I hope that helps some people. It helps me. 
The doctrine of the image of God is why Jesus himself says, when you have done it to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you have done it to me. In other words, Jesus is saying, when you have engaged in relational service to another human being in in need, one who's created in God's image, and you do so in a way that can't possibly provide a return on your investment, your energy, your time, your resources. It's as if our service and sacrifice is simply a gift to our Lord and Savior, Jesus himself. And why can he say that? The rest of the New Testament confirms this several times, that according, at least to Paul, and and at least 2 Corinthians 4 and Colossians 1, Jesus himself is the image of God pardon the seminary word, par excellence. It simply means quintessential, the ideal. Jesus himself is the image of God par excellence. That's how Jesus bears the image of God. And so when we look at Jesus, we see what we are truly created to be as humans. Yes, Jesus was 100% God. He was 100% man in a way that boggles our mind and does require faith. I can't explain it to you. It's true, by faith. But he was 100% human. He was human as you and I are all meant to be human. When you look at Jesus, if you see something there, as you read about him in the Gospels, you hear him taught, preached, you see something in his humanity (laughs) that's beautiful, That's how all humanity was intended to be. But as we will see in a couple of weeks, we get to chapter 3. The world, and specifically the image of God in all of us, takes a hit. (laughs) It's still there. You see that. James still refers to it. But it's greatly marred. And so in multiple places in the New Testament, we are also challenged to become more and more the humans that we were created to be, the image of God that we were built to be. We see this in Ephesians 4, 2 Corinthians 3, Colossians 3. But specifically, in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, we are told this, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I'm talking about Jesus. In Romans 8, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. When you look at Jesus and you see something beautiful in his humanity, my friends, if you are in him this morning, that's the path you're heading towards. The restoration of your full humanity as one created in the image and likeness of God. We can say, therefore, that the goal of bearing more and more of God's image is not to become divine, but to become more and more truly human after Jesus. And that is actually, friends, now possible because the image of God par excellence was willing to let his perfect relationship with our creator, his father, to be broken. 
He was willing to, instead of reflect God's beauty to a sinful and broken world, to himself become that sin, take on the evil, take on the brokenness onto himself. And then for a moment in time, to not be God's representative to all creation, but rather to represent all fallen human beings who place their hope and trust in him alone for their salvation and for their recreation as the image bearers of God. Almost becoming unhuman that we might become more human. (laughs) Believing that is the first step to becoming more and more truly human. That in fact all humans somewhere deep down inside want all of us to be like (laughs) what the world needs. (laughs) And who in fact as a church have been called to be with Jesus' help. May this be more and more our reality as his people, as followers of Jesus, as Res Pres. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would take these words and by your spirit plant them deep in our hearts in a way that will actually change us and transform us. Help us to believe that, Jesus, you have become in some ways unhuman, that we might become more human. Help us to believe that you have done that simply because you love us, you have made us, and you long to see us fully restored. And in fact, one day, as the writer of Revelation says, we will once again rightly (laughs) rule with you over all your cosmos. Help us to believe these things, either for the first time or the thousandth time we pray, but help us to believe them, we pray, for Christ's sake.